we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. There is more to Black history than slavery. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. Black history in America has certainly had its ups and downs. It's troubling when, for political theater, those who should know better fail to emphasize the inspirational stories that highlight the strengths of Blacks and the humanity of Whites. While it's undeniable that cruelty and suffering are part of this country's history, at some point, it's counterproductive to paint Blacks as weak victims of the white man's callousness. It's greater than sad that some race hustlers encourage young Black folks to see themselves as victims. Race hustling isn't new. Back in 1900, Booker T. Washington noted, quote, there is a class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. There is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well, end quote. In reality, with a few exceptions, no one wants to be enslaved by welfare or dead-end programs that perpetuate dependency. People can't get sucked in by the new oppressor-oppressed rhetoric. Importantly, we should be telling kids not to believe anybody if they tell them they aren't good enough. We should be telling them to rely on themselves. And yes, they need a fair opportunity but they also have to work hard for what they want. Very few people, contrary to what you might see on TV or something, are handed a good life and money on a silver platter. To quote Booker T. Washington again, he said, when a Negro girl learns to cook, to sew, to write a book, or a Negro boy learns to groom horses, grow sweet potatoes, produce butter, or to build a house, or to be able to practice medicine as well or better than someone else, they will be rewarded regardless of race or color. In the long run, the world is going to have the best, and any difference in race, religion, or previous history will not long keep the world from what it wants. Things are always changing in this world, and they're not always black and white, good or evil. And sometimes the most unlikely people may turn out to be the biggest help to you. On a personal note, my parents always told us we were as good as anyone else, despite growing up in a segregated neighborhood. And my Aunt Mary who helped raise my mother. She wasn't really a blood aunt and she was like a grandparent. She was a domestic. She and her husband were a maid butler couple and they moved from Ohio to California in the heyday of early Hollywood. We spent every summer on their little farm 
And I learned a lot of life lessons from them. One thing that I always remember is something Aunt Mary said. She said, never say can't. She said, instead, say, I'm having trouble with whatever it was. And I always remember that when I, you know, I'm even trying to get a screw out of the wall. Oh, it's so hard. I can't do it. And then I just think about Aunt Mary. No, I'm having trouble. And guess what? Somehow you figure out a way to do it. Another family story. We had an old family friend. And this is back in the early 1900s. He was a railroad porter. He handled the bags, cleaned the trains. He noticed that the garbage from all the dining was just thrown out. He asked his boss, could he have the garbage? And he says his boss looked at him like he was a crazy, shall I say, expletive. Well, our friend had the last laugh. He sold the garbage to pig farmers, made a lot of money. And as he tells the story, he says, and what do you do when you have a lot of money? You start a bank, and that he did, and he had a very large bank in California. So with that, let's just look at some more stories of strength and persistence and talent. First, just a little Revolutionary War history. And, you know, some people may know this, but some people might not. And I just love hearing about this history. So you'll be forced to hear it. There were always free Blacks in America. And indeed, in 1641, Matthias de Souza, an African indentured servant, he came from England with Lord Baltimore. He was elected to Maryland's General Assembly. And in the first census of 1790, who knew it was all the way back then, 19% of Americans were Black and 10% of those Black Americans were free. Before 1820, free Black men in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, Maine, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire voted on an equal basis with white men. Black Americans served on both sides during the Revolutionary War. Because of manpower shortages, George Washington lifted the ban on Black enlistment in the Continental Army in January 1776. He called this creating his so-called mixed multitude, and it was 15% Black. And there were small all-Black units in Rhode Island and in Massachusetts, and many slaves were promised freedom for serving. Another all-Black unit came from Haiti with French forces. Overall, at least 5,000 Black soldiers fought for the revolutionary cause. Interestingly, the British recruited slaves belonging to their, what they call, the Patriot Masters, and those were the people who were fighting against Britain, and they promised to free those slaves if they served with the British. And then Thousands of slaves escaped during the war by joining the British, and then others simply kind of escaped because there was a lot of chaos. In South Carolina, nearly 25,000 slaves, that was 30% of the enslaved population, fled, migrated, or died with all the chaos during the war.
When they withdrew their forces from Savannah and Charleston, the British also evacuated 10,000 slaves. They apparently, and it's an estimate, evacuated 20,000 slaves with their families at the end of the war. A lot of these folks who were evacuated settled in Nova Scotia, and some went to the West Indies or the Caribbean, and some went back to Great Britain. So that was way back when. There's a whole lot of other history. And uh, I just think, you know, one of the good things that's coming out of changing the curriculum, not all this CRT stuff, but if we learn more of this positive history and uh, everybody will be better off for it. So since we're a medical show, I'll tell you the story of the first black doctor. His name was James Durham. And he was born probably in about 1757 and died somewhere in the early 1800s. It's interesting because sometimes I think affirmative action brought it on itself, where it's giving the idea that Black folks don't have the smarts to be a doctor or to be anything, but we know that that's not true. And James Durham certainly proved that to be true several hundred years ago. He was born a slave in Philadelphia. So slavery was all over. It was more popular in the South because there was more farming in the South. Anyway, James's early masters taught him to read and write. One master was a doctor. And when James was a teen, this doctor taught him how to mix and administer medicines to patients. During the Revolutionary War, the doctor was arrested for being a Tory and died in prison. So now he was a young adult. He was sold to a British officer and he doctored soldiers during the war. After the war, he became property of a doctor in New Orleans. The doctor hired James as a nurse in 1783. And that, by the way, is the year the revolution ended. So since he was making money, he bought his freedom. He set up his own medical practice in New Orleans where he treated black and white, all sorts of patients. And he spoke English, French, and Spanish. By the time he was 30, he earned $3,000 a year. And we knew that's a lot of money back in the late 1700s. He was very popular and very high, highly regarded. So just so you know, you know, back then, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that doctors actually went to medical school and got a degree that how people became doctors was by being an apprentice to another doctor. So it wasn't like he was second-class citizen doctor. This is how people became doctors. Dr. Durham had written a medical paper on his success in treating diphtheria. And uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who's considered the father of American medicine, and he was also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and he was Surgeon General of the Continental Army, he had read the article, and Dr. Rush invited Dr. Durham to Philadelphia. He was so impressed by him that he encouraged him 
to move to Philadelphia, where he became an expert in throat diseases and the relationship between weather and disease. So he moved back. He only stayed in Philadelphia a couple of years. And he moved back to New Orleans, where he saved a lot of yellow fever victims. And he stopped practicing medicine probably in the early 1800s, maybe 1801, when the city regulations uh, changed the licensing rules. So we have the first university-trained Black physician was back in 1813, and uh, he was a slave, but his parents were emancipated. And he ultimately went to Scotland because that's where he could go to medical school and um, came back to the United States in the mid-1800s. So... There was definitely bigotry, but these guys overcame. And I think about Black doctors in America in later times, you know, in 1900s, doctors weren't allowed to be on hospital staffs. So they started their own hospitals, sometimes in their own homes. This is called persistence. When you want something, you work for it. And you just push, push, push. And that's what these guys did. So it makes me very proud to be a doctor. So away from medicine, and we'll do a quickie. And I just love things about inventions because it's something really, to me, anybody can do. You just, how they say necessity is the mother of invention. You think of something, boy, I wish I had whatever it might be. Well, a lot of people figure out how to do it. Well, the first black patent was given oh, in early 1800s, and it was to a fellow named Thomas Jennings. Now, he was born a free black man in 1791. And again, 10% of black Americans were free. And by the Civil War, there were a million free black people. So anyway, in his early 20s, Jennings became a tailor. Then he opened a dry cleaning business in the city. When he was 30 years old, he was given a patent for a cleaning process called dry scouring. This is where modern day dry cleaning comes from. So the interesting part about this is under the Early Patent Law Act back in 1793, only citizens of the United States could get a patent. It was unclear whether free Blacks were citizens, but free Blacks could vote in over half the states, including New York. So, you know, who knew? The first money he earned from his patent he brought, bought his family out of slavery and gave money to the abolitionist cause. There is a guy named Henry Blair, and he was the only inventor to be identified in the patent office records back then as a, quote, colored man. He was born in Maryland in around 1807, and he got his patent for a seed planter in 1834 and in 1836 for a cotton planter. So that's interesting. So uh, it's kind of a lesson for laws in a way. When they're unclear, you push the envelope and 
these guys just went ahead with their life and uh, invented, made money, and moved ahead. Well, for right this minute, I'm going to move ahead and talk about Cofix RX. You all know Cofix RX. It's got the big button on our page. And this is something to help us get through the winter. And frankly, all year long, there's colds, there's viruses. And what Cofix RX is, it's a combination of iodine and xylitol and some vitamin D. And these things have antiviral properties. And what I do and what you're supposed to do is squirt this up your nose. And why we squirt something up our nose? Because almost all of us get sick with these respiratory tract infections by inhaling viruses through the nose. And if we can stop it in its tracks when it's incubating right at the start, we can at least reduce, if not eliminate, the impact of that viral invasion. Because you know, we're breathing this stuff in all the time and a lot just depends on how strong your immune system is. And this Cofix RX is something that really helps us out. And one wonderful thing about it, it was invented by American doctors. It's made in America. It's sold in a lot of places, health food stores, medical offices, pharmacies. And you can push the little button the, on the computer. There's a little image for it on our page. And read more about it and purchase if you like. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. So, back to our history of persistence strength, courage. We'll look at a couple of interesting slave escapes. That's what I love. You, again, this idea, it was horrible, horrible to be a slave. I can't even imagine, and I'm sure some of these masters treated these folks horribly, separated families, you know, beat them within an inch of their life if they, you know, had some sort of infraction. And other masters apparently were quite nice, but nonetheless, you're still a slave. So 
Do you sit back and take it? No. And this is a lesson to us all. So I'm sure with some exceptions, most slaves wanted to be free. One of the most famous guys who escaped was a fellow named Henry Box Brown. He was in Virginia and Virginia had lots of slaves. And he figured out a really daring escape back in 1849. He, part of his escape involved having a reason to get out of the fields that day. Only in really extreme injuries could a slave keep from working, you know, sprained ankles and pulled muscles, bad back. That wasn't enough of an excuse. So this is so unbelievable. He pulled out some sulfuric acid, which they called oil of vitriol, and burned his hands very badly and one hand practically to the bone. That was finally enough to get out of the day's work. But then what he did with the help of a freed slave and a white shopkeeper, he stuffed himself into a three feet by two and a half feet by two foot box labeled dry goods. He was 27 hours in that box, complete with his burnt hands, most of it upside down. He arrived at the home of a Philadelphia abolitionist. Once he reached freedom, he worked as a magician and spoke out against slavery. It's kind of interesting. Frederick Douglass actually criticized uh, Henry Box Brown a lot because he didn't like that he publicized the way he escaped slavery. He thought other slaves could do that same method of mailing themselves if the, he'd kept quiet about the details. And uh, so a lot of slaves actually did try and they built these shipping crates. But again, the plans were thwarted because people had heard of Brown's story. So that kind of irritated Frederick Douglass. So then there was Harriet Jacobs, who was in North Carolina, and she decided to escape. She knew her odds were really slim, but she hid up in the crawl space of her grandmother's place for seven years with rats and who knows what else in there. And eventually she escaped out of there and went to New York, where she too became active in the abolitionist movement. And then another one, our last escape. This was in 1862. There was a guy, Robert Smalls, who worked on ships, and he had a pretty good job as a slave. But what he did while the white shipmates had left the ship and gone ashore, he disguised himself in a captain's hat and jacket, and he and some other shipmates hijacked the steamship in Charleston, South Carolina. They picked up their families, and then they sailed into the Charleston Harbor, safely past Fort Sumter. And when he got to the Union blockade, he put a white surrender flag up as the first uh, Nazi, uh, I'm sorry, a white flag up. 
And so he was taken in and uh, that's how he escaped. But he had been lucky in that he had a job on a ship, but he was able to formulate this plan. And again, I, I, I like these stories because it, it kind of lets us know. Fortunately, most of us are not slaves, even though now we have human trafficking and we do have some modern day slavery, even in America, um, that your persistence and your courage can help us through bad times. And we all have bad times and they're not as bad as this, but it at least gives us a lesson that there's always something we can try to do. With Smalls, after he escaped, he became a politician and he was in the South Carolina State Assembly and Senate. And um, he was in the U.S. House of Representatives for five terms. And it's, it, when I read these things, it, I find it interesting. And I think it's good for people to know when people go on and on about, oh, first black this, first black that. Sometimes people act like black people didn't do anything until 1980 or something. Black people have been doing stuff ever since they set foot on this continent. So I'm going to tell you about another invention. And like I said, I love inventions because everybody has a good idea. Sometimes I wish I were clever enough to come up with something. I, I invent little things around the house, but certainly I'll never be a millionaire <laughs> from selling them. So in 1857, there was a guy, Oscar Stewart. He was a lawyer and a farmer in Mississippi. And he tried to get his slave Ned's invention patented. Ned was a blacksmith and he had designed a cotton scraper. And it was, it was a tool that prepared the soil for planting cotton. The patent office turned the lawyer farmer down because he could not swear that Ned was a citizen. To Mr. Stewart's credit, he didn't pretend that the invention was his own. You know, he fully gave Ned the credit. He worked hard for his slave. He tried with the Secretary of the Interior and the Attorney General, and uh, the Civil War was coming. The Attorney General ruled that patents wouldn't be given for slave inventions, not to the master or the slave. So Mr. Stewart, the master, went into business making Ned's cotton scraper without a patent. He made a pile of money anyway. And in his advertising, he openly said that his scraper was, quote, the invention of a Negro slave. The story gets really crazy when Jefferson Davis, who was the future president of the Confederacy, wanted to patent his brother's slave invention. It was a new steamboat propeller. Now it couldn't be patented. So when the South broke away from the Union, Davis made it so Confederate law allowed patents to the inventions of slaves. So look at, it's kind of like what Walter Williams, the economist said, that uh, sometimes a lot of things can beat out racism preferences and necessities. So here, making money beat out racism. In 1870, that was 16 years at, at, after the end of the Civil War, 
the U.S. government passed a patent law giving all American men, <laughs> including Blacks, the rights to their inventions. I have to talk about one little invention. It wasn't by a slave, but I just think it's a fun story. This was George Crumb. He was born in New York and um, his father was Black. His mother was a Native American. And uh, so he was not a slave, but he had a and had a good job. He worked as a guide in the mountains in New York and was an Indian trader. And he decided he had some cooking talent. So he was working as a chef at this very elegant lake resort where French fried potatoes were a big favorite on the menu. As the story goes, a customer sent his French fries back to the kitchen, complaining they were too thick and were soggy. So George Crumb cut them thinner, and the customer still complained and wanted them even thinner. I guess old George didn't like being criticized. So he sliced the potatoes as thin as he possibly could. He fried them in donut grease and made them crunchy and brown and so thin you couldn't even eat them with the fork. He put a lot of salt on it hoping to teach the customer a lesson. Well, the plan backfired. The customer loved him and asked for more. The potato chips then became the specialty of the restaurant. They were called Saratoga chips. And of course, now it's one of our favorite junk foods. So in 1860, George opened his own restaurant. George Crumb was his name, remember? It was called the Crumb's House. And he catered to a very upscale clientele. His guests apparently included some of the richest people in the United States. And one of the attractions was that there was a basket of potato chips on every table. His restaurant was open for 30 years. He died in 1914 at the age of 92. So I don't know as a doctor, whether we can take this to mean potato chips are good for you, or maybe it's just that a lot of hard work is good for you. So I'm, I love potato chips. And it, apparently just recently, there was some study about why we like potato chips, that there's something about the mixture of the potato and the oil. And when you put them together, it releases something, yet another thing that tells our brain that we want more and more and more. So our next story is about Elizabeth. Her nickname was Bessie Coleman. And some of you might have seen her name. Uh, I know in Oakland, the airport has a plaque to Bessie Coleman. She was an aviator. I mean, most people hear about the Tuskegee Airmen and, you know, think, oh, that's black flying. But this was a woman aviator way back when. She was born in 1892. Um, and the Wright Brothers' flight was in 1903. She was the first Black American female pilot, first Black American to have an international pilot's license. This was a woman whose parents were sharecroppers in Texas. She was the 10th of 
13 children. And she said, growing up, I just want to amount to something. It's, it's interesting because that statement is so strong. And I remember growing up that we had a book on our bookshelf and it was by Althea Gibson, the tennis player. And the title of the book is I Always Wanted to Be Somebody. So there's this theme. And don't we all want to be somebody? We all want to feel proud of ourselves. So anyway, Bessie went to school. And this sounds like, you know, almost a fake story, but she walked four miles each day to her all black, one room school. She was a good student. She liked to read. She liked math. And she had all her eight, eight grades in that one room school. She went to college for a year, but ran out of money. So in 1915, she went to Chicago to live with her brothers. She worked at the barber shop doing manicures. And she ran into pilots who were returning home from World War I. And they told stories about flying. And she started to dream about being a pilot. She couldn't get into American flight schools because she was Black. And no Black U.S. aviator would train her because she was a woman. Finally, the owner of a Black Chicago newspaper paid for her to go to France to become a pilot. The paper used her great personality and her beauty to promote the newspaper and to promote her cause. When she came back to Chicago, she wanted to be a commercial stunt pilot but no one would train her. She went back to France to get some more training. So in 1922, she became a media sensation when she returned to the United States. She was compared to Amelia Earhart. She made her first appearance in an American air show in 1923 and an event honoring veterans of the all-Black 369th Infantry Regiment of World War I. Yes, just in case anybody didn't know, Blacks fought in World War I, just like in the Revolutionary and the Civil Wars. She gained a reputation for being a really skilled and very daring pilot, and she would stop at nothing to do a difficult stunt. She thought that flying could help erase the racism that was on the ground below. She refused to participate in segregated air shows, and she raised money to open a flight school for Blacks in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, she died young. She died while practicing for an air show before she could fulfill her dream of starting that school. But her life inspired Lieutenant William Powell, who was a decorated World War I veteran, and no instructor anywhere in Chicago taught him to fly. He had sold his successful garage chain in Chicago and moved to Los Angeles in 1929, where he founded a flight school. And again, people were more interested, as he said, in the color of his money than the color of his skin. And then he started Bessie Coleman Flying Clubs, as he put it, to fill the air with black wings. So Bessie Coleman um, wrote Lieutenant Powell in his book, Black Wings. We have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. 
we have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. In 1995, Bessie Coleman was honored with her image on a U.S. postage stamp and was inducted into the Women in Aviation Hall of Fame. Mae Jemison, if you remember, she's a physician and she was a NASA, ast NASA astronaut. She says, I point to Bessie Coleman and say without hesitation, here is a woman, a being who exemplifies and serves as a model to humanity, the very definition of strength, dignity, courage, integrity, and beauty. So on that note, it, it all, it almost really tears me up just thinking about it and thinking about uh, what people went through and how strong they were. And we have our nerves sometimes complaining, don't we? So I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. You all know we are always a beat ahead. We've got our free apps on Apple and Android and Alexa, and you can hear us every weekday at 5 with an encore at 11 p.m. That's Eastern Time. And on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. My favorite part, well, I've got a lot of favorite parts, but it goes, the shows go direct to podcasts in 24 hours. And they're on a lot of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. And one of the other wonderful things about the show is that it's different every day. I'm on on Mondays and you have Tuesdays with Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And I know, look at me, I have to sit here all by myself oh, for a whole hour, but I hope you all are enjoying it. And in this case, learning a lot. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. 
It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. So, back to, I guess I call it my Black History Month feature. So, we were talking about flying and how these folks had to go to France, which is interesting how forward-thinking France was, um, to uh, learn to fly. And uh, a lot of, there were several guys then that learned in France and then they came out to the LA school. And then of course, we fast forward up to Tuskegee Airmen where black folks learned to fly. And I'm sure I've mentioned it before that um, my father was in the Tuskegee Army Air Corps as a flight surgeon. So flying, I guess maybe that's why flying kind of tweaks me and I'm so interested in it. There's so many of these stories, and these are just a few of these escapes and what Black folks did. And I guess what gets kind of bothersome is even now, all we hear about is slavery, slavery, slavery. And I think we all know that there was slavery. We all know how horribly Black people were treated, but we need to know all the good things that Black people have done. And I think by now, people have heard about Dr. Ben Carson, my goodness, that this is a fellow who grew up poor in Detroit and became a world-famous neurosurgeon. Our paths cross for only a few months at Hopkins. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to know him better. I was leaving pretty much when he was coming. And uh, they made a movie about him with Cuba Gooding Jr., what was it called, Gifted Hands. And uh, But you don't have to be a famous neurosurgeon to uh, do something with your life. That's the thing. It makes me go back to Aunt Mary, Uncle Raleigh, Uncle Earl, that these folks had more than humble beginnings. And this was back in 1900, early 1900s, that they did something with their lives and didn't sit around complaining. I remember Uncle Raleigh used to love to listen to the baseball games and growing I always hated baseball. I thought it was so boring. But he I think he liked baseball, but more than liking baseball, he loved to listen to the Dodgers because of Jackie Robinson. And he tells, you know, the story of Jackie Robinson. And these are things that kids need to hear 
they need to know that there were trailblazers and people who put up with a lot of you know what to get where they are. And uh, maybe I think sometimes we need to tell people to just plain quit complaining. I want to read something from a book that, again, something else I grew up with. We had this book autographed, my goodness, to my mother. And it was by Langston Hughes and Milton Metzler. Okay, Meltzer, I'm sorry, I said his name wrong. The title of this book was called A Pictorial History of the Negro in America. The first chapter begins, it says, what is a Negro? The federal government through his agency and the United States Bureau of Census has ruled that in its official tabulations, a person of mixed white and Negro blood should be returned as a Negro, no matter how small the percentage of Negro blood. Both Black and mulatto persons are to be returned as Negroes without distinction. A person of mixed Indian and Negro blood should be returned as a Negro, unless the Indian blood very definitely predominates and he is universally accepted in the community as an Indian. Mixtures of non-white races should be reported according to the race of the father, except that Negro Indian should be reported as Negro. Boy, were they precise. Now, that's how he begins the book. And this is what I just think is interesting. And if you can ever find this book, it's wonderful because it really does have a lot of pictures and it gives you a real flavor of history. He says, the North American Negro today ranges in complexion from very dark to near white, from crinkly hair to silken blonde, from broad feature to thin. Thus, among American Negroes are to be found all types of physical appearance. Many Negroes in the United States are still largely of African descent, but many others are of mixed and ancestry, Caucasian, Indian, and Oriental. Now, mind you, what I'm reading you was written in 1956. And then he goes on to talk about some of the famous folks. And then he says, and this is what I just think is so important. And just as American Negroes vary greatly in appearance, they vary widely in temperament and education and in their range of occupation. Now, the key to me there is the idea that now, you know, they talk about the black community or black thought or whatever, as if all black people were alike. So we're talking 1956 by a very famous black activist, I, I, Metzler is a white fellow, Langston Hughes is very well known, easy to look up. And um, that we're all different. We're not all the same. And what they're doing now, trying to make people all the same, I think is a sin. It's, it's, it's 
Well, it's a crime and it's not right. And we have to fight that. So they, he talks about the first Negroes came to the shores of North America, accompanied the early European explorers, and then some slaves were imported from Africa by the boatloads. And they were talking about most being field hands, but some learned skills, carpentry, brick mason, ironwork, and shipbuilding. And this kind of goes back to... Um, what Booker T. Washington was talking about, have a skill. And if you have a skill, then you will be needed. And if you're needed, then that helps overcome racism. He says, today, Negroes in America pursue a variety of occupations, trades, and professions. Many are farmers, other are Others are postmen, red caps, and waiters. Some are lawyers, doctors, dentists, and nurses. Many colored men and women are teachers. Others are engaged in politics, business, the ministry, and social work. There are Negro actors, dancers, musicians, writers, and painters. In American Men of Science, 8th edition, 128 Negroes are listed. Now, I'm reading this, and maybe more for me than you, but I hope for you, just so people can see Black achievement didn't happen because a handful of white folks went out and marched in 1960s. Things improved for everybody in the era of Martin Luther King, but there's always been strong, educated Black folks, even during the slavery times. And as I mentioned, 10% of Blacks were free. So they went to college, they did things, the same things that white people did. So this idea of, you know, siloing people off, like, you know, they're freaks from another planet is ridiculous. And just white people aren't freaks from another planet. Black people, Asians, Hispanics are not freaks from another planet. And he goes on to say, the vast majority of Negroes now living in the United States were born in this country. A small percentage are immigrants from the West Indies. Almost none are native Africans. Now you know why I hate the term African-American. Uh, and he says, which I love, the first Negroes came to the New World, just as did most of the first white men, with little or no worldly goods. Today, Black men had businesses which are capitalized in the millions. There are some whose individual annual incomes exceed the salary of the President of the United States. There are millions of other Negroes who, like many white Americans, live at bare subsistence level. Negroes range from laborers and tenant farmers to stars in the theater and concert stage, champions in the field of sport and generals in the army. And here's the line I love. As citizens of the United States, Negroes are Americans 
and their way of life is much the same as that of other Americans. Now, Langston Hughes, 1956. Negroes are Americans. We're Americans like everybody else. And this whole idea that we're not being thought of, and when I say we, all of us, all racial groups, having people divide us up in these little groups, there's another reason it has nothing to do with us all being Americans, all with different talents. And it it's bothersome. Now, there's a Marian Anderson. I don't know if you've heard of her. She was a contralto. And she was the first Black person to perform at the Metropolitan Opera. And uh, this was in the early 1920s. And she said, and it's reminiscent of Martin Luther King, obviously he came after her. When I sing, I don't want them to see that my face is black. I don't want them to see that my face is white. I want them to see my soul. And that is colorless. She said that in the 1950s. So I wonder what happened to that attitude, the courage, the persistence, people being proud of their talent. We've allowed it to be hijacked by these race baiters and charlatans. Well, the way I see it, this whole idea of white privilege it's so 20th century. I think that Black people should look at the their privilege, 400 years of problems, and certainly not 400 years of slavery, but we have some sequelae of slavery, that we've earned Black privilege. And I don't mean privilege like affirmative action. It's the privilege of being associated with strength and ingenuity. And it's like, it's, it's in the blood. My goodness, if anybody is descended from a slave who escaped, imagine that's what should drive you, not, oh, poor me. Great grandpa Joe was a slave. Great Grandpa Joe made it. He wasn't beaten to death. He escaped. He fought in the army, or he just managed to live through slavery. We have to, and all of us, doesn't matter what race you are, because this oppressor oppressed nonsense is kind of folding into white people too, that everybody's trying to be the biggest victim. So everybody's got to get that can-do attitude back. And I just think the politicians are just using it. Say you're oppressed. Oh, good. Then I'll give you something. Again, doesn't matter what color you are, that they just want to offer the goodies for your vote. But you know what they really want. Whatever their plan is, it's for getting power just to be powerful themselves, not to empower you. I mean, when you look at some of these proposals, giving people money for doing nothing, a lot of it is just pressures from unions and 
because of pressure from the teachers union, they're tamping down school choice. And school choice has got to be one of the things that we have to do to get people to get a good education early on. And we all know that the earlier you learn, the better off you do ultimately. So we know that society is working toward colorblindness and don't say like these racist, anti-racist cult says that colorblindness is racist. How could colorblindness be racist? I mean, remember what in the Langston Hughes book, when he's talking about what was defined as a Negro and saying the complexion ranges from dark to nearly white, crinkly hair to silk and blonde. And it's the sort of thing, yes, within a race, we should be colorblind and across all races, we should be, we should be colorblind. So blaming people, calling people racist is counterproductive. And I don't think that's how everyday people feel. That's not how they live. So I think it's time for us to take a break from all this politically motivated vitriol and just put our lives in our own hands. And remember what Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And George Washington Carver, the famous peanut farmer born into slavery, he said 99% of the failures come from people who have the habit of making excuses. There is no shortcut to achievement. And that stands for us all. So as forget the politics, let's just all work hard on ourselves and try to be better people. And that's my story for today. So I want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And we do have our Q&A feature. If you have any questions, send them to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And we'll, the question can be for the guests, the host, and we'll get you an answer. You send it by email. First name is fine. And um, depending on what it is, we'll answer it on the air. So whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. So until next week, say it loud, say it louder. I'm free and I'm proud.